Father in heaven, we're thankful today we can again come together and we can uh, spend some time together. We ask a blessing on our time together and we ask that your spirit would be, be with us. Um, we thank you and we come in Christ's name. Amen. Um, been talking about little vignettes from Adventist history um, and you know, what we can learn from those lessons. And uh, the one I want to start out with today is a guy by the name of this afternoon is S.N. Haskell. And S.N. Haskell was, he was um, an early Adventist pioneer and administrator. And he, he was so effective as an administrator that one time he was the president of a conference on the East Coast and California at the same time. <laughs> Um, he's like kind of my uh, miracle guy, you know, like, wow, if I want to grow up, I want to be like this guy who can like be a conference president, I think it was like in Massachusetts or somewhere, at the same time in California. Um, he married, a, he married a, you know, a lady that he was deeply in love, but who was, who was uh, crippled um, or disabled, as they would say in, in California. And uh, so she was disabled, and um, um, she helped him start a lot of stuff, though. Uh, started the, um, like the Adventist Book Centers, you've heard of those? The Literature Ministry, a lot of that, started all that. Um, uh, the school in South, South Lancaster, he was an educator, started, started a bunch of schools. And Ellen White liked, liked uh, of course, the Haskells, they were close friends with them. And what they kind of did was they, they kind of like, uh, they kind of encapsulated the, uh, the REAP concept. Um, Mrs. Haskell would cook, you know, and the, the aroma would go out. People would come in, and, and uh, they'd have health classes and different things, and they have students in their homes. So restoration then led to education. They'd educate the people. And Haskell was this guy. Remember the story about how he was at a camp meeting once, and he was preaching, and he was teaching, and the rain started to come down. You remember the story? And the rain started coming down, and nobody could hear what he was saying. I had that happen to me once. Uh, I, we, we had this church in, in Wichita, Kansas, and um, it was a metal church, and all the hail came down during one of my sermons. Was anyone there during that? Here? <laughs> but I kept preaching anyway, and everyone, no one could hear me. They all started laughing. So the sermon was for myself, you know. But uh, afterwards, someone came and told me the story of Haskell and how, you know, when that had happened, he just started to call the people to the middle of the tent, and then he would call out a text, and then everyone would tell everybody the text, and he preached the sermon just by text because they couldn't hear him. So the progression of the text are the things that led it. And of course, you have Haskell's handbook. How many of you have got that little book? And Mark Finley tried to copy him, but wasn't quite as good. And you got, you know, Finley studying together, you know, other people try and do it, but, you know, Nobody can kind of kick it up like Haskell did. And, 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 and you know, he kind of sets the pace. Even today, people, today they write books like his. You know, like they're trying to write Daniel and Revelation. He wrote that already. Uh, books on the sanctuary. Um, and he wrote those books. And, and, of course, he and Ellen White were very close. He had a strong regard for the spirit of prophecy. And also, actually, personally for Ellen White. Because after his wife died and her husband died, he asked her to marry him. But she said, no, <laughs> we're too good of friends. <laughs> Which is a good line, ladies, if you're ever thinking of one. So, um, <laughs> we're too good. We're too good of friends, right? But Haskell was also this person that could be called upon who knew the Bible and the spirit of prophecy very well. And they had this, uh, this problem in Indiana, you know. How many of you are from Indiana? Okay, so you don't 
mind if I say sometimes they have problems in Indiana. So they had, they had this problem in Indiana, what's called the Holy Flesh Movement. You ever heard of this? And this is what happens when people get this hyper view of being perfect. You know, if they're perfect, then everything they do is perfect. And if they happen to want your flesh and their flesh, you know, then they're still holy. And so if someone says they're perfect, this is, this is a problem with it. You know, you're like, really? <laughs> How long have you been thinking that? Because the longer they say, the more danger you're in. Um, now, that doesn't mean people can't be perfect. Don't get me wrong. It's just that... Uh, God in His wisdom lets, doesn't let you know about it. <laughs> right? He, he kind of keeps that from you because <laughs> it might mess you up. So, uh, um, that's true. I mean, that's like this is much more true than it even sounds. I mean, it's kind of funny too, but it's really not. It's true. So, uh, but sometimes things that are true can still be funny. Is this true? That's a funny thing about being true sometimes. Like, for instance, I was wondering uh, just before lunch about, you know, the, the, the you know, uh, what was his name? What was that guy's name? Elijah. He goes up to Mount Carmel and the prophets, <laughs> the prophets are calling out to their God. He goes, is your God still sleeping? <laughs> Maybe he went on vacation. <laughs> so why don't you should jump higher or cut yourselves more? Anyway, I thought that was funny when I read it the first time. <laughs> I mean, and it's true. It's true. Isn't it true? It's true. And it's also kind of well, maybe not funny, but because, you know, you had, it was a serious thing going on. But I still, you understand what I'm saying. So anyway, Haskell could be called upon at these certain times. Now, this is just the introduction. I'm not even to my PowerPoints yet, which should concern some of you. And um, in Indiana, they had this holy flesh going on. And people were getting into all kinds of crazy stuff, all right? I'm talking crazy. I won't go into it all, but you kind of figure it out with holy flesh, right? Like... They were looking at other people's spouses and all kinds of stuff. All kinds of stuff was going on. And Ellen White says, get over there uh, and help them out. Or they called for them. And he came. And when they heard Haskell preach, it was like a, a clarion call. It was a clear bell, they said. It was like the ringing of a bell. They could really understand what he was saying. And there was nothing left undone. And, you know, Ellen White wrote of that time period, the things that you've heard that are happening in Indiana... The same things will happen at the end of time. There was the beating of a big drum. There was all kinds of music she said was wrong. And there was all kinds of things going on. And in other words, in Indiana, they were having an experience-based worship style where they were touching and feeling the wrong things. And they were listening and experiencing the wrong things. And in the midst of that came the clear preaching of the Word. So, in our acronym, we had restoration. We talked about some vignettes from health, from the, from the, from the past, then to the future. We talked about education. We talked about E.A. Sutherland McGann. And now we talked about S.N. Haskell. And he, can, he was brought in to clarify what a true worship experience was like. How many think there needs to be some clarity concerning worship experiences today? I just was attending a rather large facility that was known as a house of worship. And it had all of these lights all over. Now, we have lights here, but those look more like box kites to me. And these lights that they had on this particular set, they were like, at, at different parts of the service, the lights would go up, and then down, and then it was on the side of the walls, and this and that. Ooh. I was like, ooh. <laughs> right? And then the music would go, and I would go, ooh, because that's what I was supposed to do. But I was kind of concerned because faith by, comes by hearing and hearing by the manipulation of lights. 
I mean, by what? By the Word of God, and specifically the preaching of the Word. You see what I'm saying? So now, in that light, <laughs> with that little introduction, let's go on. Adoration. Oh, got to turn this on. doesn't work without it on. Book I'm reading recently on what's called the Emerging Church. Um, I like to call it the Submergent Church, but they call it the Emerging Church. The Emerging Church. The modern culture, which began with the Enlightenment, has recently been completely replaced by a worldview which is postmodern. Says who? You know, this, who came up with that word? These po uh, postmodern ministry proponents insist that most evangelical churches are hindered by being caught up in the modern era. They will only be successful, they say, by moving into the postmodern model. So they say, look, the only way to, to really get, you know, get with it is to not be modern anymore. And what they mean by modern is the scientific method and all those logical thought. They say it's abandoned us. We had the industrial revolution and what's it done for us? We had all the science and what's it done for us? Now, I find it interesting that these kind of people, when they get sick, still go to a doctor. <laughs> that has a diploma, you know what I mean? They don't want to like experience something new when they get sick. But never mind, this is the only church they're talking about. It's not that important. Tongue in cheek, I'm saying that, right? So they call it, they say, what you need is to experience the church on the other side. You know, take a walk on the wild side. You need to explore off the map. By the way, if you're off the map, where are you? You're dead. You need to have an exciting, unmapped world on the other side of all we know so far. Uh, these are the kind of things. And they call that the emerging church. Why do they call it emerging? Because we can't see it yet. It's, it's coming up. We, we are trying to picture it. Emerging. It's emerging. So the basis for learning then, they say, in this form of adoration of God, this worship is, you need to shift from logic and rational to the realm of experience and the mystical. They have books like The Secret Jesus or The Bible Code or The Adventure or Emerging Spirituality. Or the Gnostic Gospels, right? So, how many of you have heard these phrases before? It's like, it makes you feel kind of, you know, like, whoa, I'm going to experience something new and unusual. <sighs> kind of reminds me of, like, something in the Garden of Eden. Anyway. But how new is this supposedly new thought? Well, here's the guy that originated. Does he look young or older to you? What would you say? How many of you think he's young? Well, compared to Methuselah, yes, thank you. And how many of you think that he's older? Yeah, he's older. I mean, how many of you think that he's probably not going to, he's going to have to pay the full fee plus some for WIC? <laughs> okay, he's going to have to pay that. Now, where is this guy from? Do you know this guy? His name's Pete. Peter. Peter Drucker. Have you ever heard of this guy, Peter Drucker? Peter Drucker is like a management guru. He's dead now. May he rest in peace. But he came up with this idea of postmodernism. Listen to his words. Peter Drucker writing in, guess what year? Good guess. 1957 in an article called Landmarks for Tomorrow. 57, 67, 77, 87, 97, 2000. 50 years ago we're talking. How many of you were not even alive or even a twinkle in your grandparents' eye? He writes this, a postmodern world. 
the postmodern world. At some unmarked point during the last 20 years, which would be back to 37, we imperceptibly moved out of the modern age and into a new and as yet nameless era. Our view of the world has changed. There is a new spiritual center to human existence. Oh, thanks for letting us know. We thus live in an age of transition, an age of overlap, where the old modern of yesterday no longer acts effectively, while the new and the postmodern effectively controls our actions and their impact. And that was the first time you had this whole idea of postmodern, way back in the 30s, that was written about in the 50s. In 1990, Drucker established the Leader to Leader Institute, an interspiritual thought forum, which to this day includes Buddhist sympathizers, globalists, evangelicals, and New Age sympathizers. He believed people's needs supersede doctrine or institutional structure. That's why Oprah can do her little hocus pocus. She's like the new age, putting the other together. Have you read her book? Don't. It'll make you sick. And it's mesmerizing and uh, emancipating from reality. Now, who are Drucker's devotees? Devotees. See if you can spot the language here. You may come up with, go, I know. And if you do, raise your hand and I'll call upon you. I did a series of lectures for the faculty at the Kennedy Institute. I started with this quote from Peter Drucker and I, that said this. The most significant sociological phenomenon of the first half of the 20th century was the rise of the corporation. The most significant sociological phenomenon of the second half of the 20th century has been the development of the large pastoral church, or the megachurch. It is the only organization that is actually working in our society. So, here this thought leader was p quoting Peter Drucker, and Peter Drucker said, the only institution that is working in society today is the large megachurch, the large pastoral-driven megachurch. So all of those pastoral leaders that were reading their magazines, they said, oh, oh, if we want to be successful, we need to have a large pastoral megachurch. Have you ever seen a megachurch? There's all kinds of them. Now, by the way, Jesus kind of ran a megachurch. I mean, it is kind of true. In fact, Jesus was so good, it says in Desire of Ages, that his church was so big you couldn't nearly fit it in a building. He had to go up on the side of a mountain, or he had to go out in a boat. It says actually in the Desire of Ages that there was, it says actually in the Desire of Ages that there was no building large enough to hold the congregations that followed him. Amen. So I think when you talk megachurch, it's also actually too small. <laughs> anyway, so how many think this is kind of interesting? Who, do you, who wrote that? Did you figure it out by just listening to me? No, of course you didn't. But um, he goes on. So I'll give you another hint. Now Drucker has said that it, he said this, this author continues, at least six times. I happen to know this because he's my, my mentor. Not tormentor, but mentor. I've spent 20 years under his tutelage learning about leadership from him, and he's written it in, should be two of three books, and he says he thinks it, that's the megachurch, is the only thing that really works in society. Sorry about some of those typos. I just put it in quickly so you could read it with me on the screen. So who said this? What? What'd you say? Bill Hybels. Good guess. He believes the same thing. 
Joel Olstein believes the same thing. But guess who said this? You know who that is? That's Rick Warren, Saddleback. So Saddleback, he says, this is really the way. Now, Rick Warren has, which, which size church does he have? It's the largest church in America, right? Bill Hybels is like, this is a huge megachurch. And so they're, they're tracing back and they say, this is it. Drucker was right. We need to be emerging, uh, an emerging church, off the map, a chart, do this, blah, 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 blah. So he continues on. These are the people that are really influenced by Drucker. You can see him behind them all. Um, you know any of these people? Joel Olstein, Bill Hybels, Leonard Sweet, or not so sweet, depending on what you think. And then, of course, uh, um, Rick Warren. And these are powerful people. They call politicians together. In fact, Rick Warren called all the politicians together before this campaign cycle. He said, look, you, you might win the election. <laughs> That'll be good for you. <laughs> but you're really not going to do anything without our help. You can't do anything in the world without the help of the church. Because it's the most powerful agency in the world. So I don't care which one of you wins. I'm going to be working with you. Wow. Pretty heady stuff, right? Well, let's, just, let's drill down and see what they say. Because remember what I told you. In Indiana, there was this guy, Essen Haskell, and he had to go into this environment where they all thinking that, that it was the drum and it was the holy flesh movement and all this stuff. They had to have that experience going on because that's what's going to really grow the church. And it sure did. You know? By the way, in Jesus' time, back in the Old Testament time as well, in the Old Testament time especially, but then in the time of Corinth as well, you know, um, they found ways to get church growth. The Canaanite cult surrounding Israel were known for their immorality. Moab really means Mo, who, Ab means father, who is my father. They had a little immorality going on, and it was related to the cultures of the church. You would go with someone who was not your wife or not your husband, and you'd go to church. And then you'd go through all the ceremonies, and then you would have a very close relationship with one another to consummate that worship experience. Needless to say, church growth takes on a new connotation under such situations. The same thing happened in, in Corinth. They had these temples that were known for prostitution. Uh, but it wasn't prostitution, it was worship, and they called the people mega busy. Good name in Greek. But today the same thing's happening again. They have this whole idea of experience-driven, of touchy-feely kind of stuff going on. By the way, I've noticed that churches that go towards this way have all those kind of same things happening again. Have you noticed that? Well, I, I can explain that later if someone has a question. Now, here's Leonard Sweet, or I would say not so sweet, talking about this. And by the way, Leonard Sweet, you know, he sends his kids to an Adventist school, last time I talked to him. He's a Lutheran by training. He's invited to all kinds of ministers' meetings for Adventists. In fact, I've been in a number of them. And this is what, this is kind of the stuff he says. He didn't have this direct, but I read some of his books after he came to the first conference. But this is what he says. Mysticism, once cast to the sidelines as Christian tradition, is now situated in a postmodern culture near the center. So in other words, mysticism is the big thing. Too many people, too many people are nothing, as our empty pews are shouting to us, because we give neither an energy fire experience of Christ, nor the Christ of an energy fire experience. 
We may help them apprehend reality through the rudiments of mystical speculations, but not the rapture of flow of experiences. Mysticism, what Einstein's called cosmic religiosity, is metaphysics arrived at, at through mind-body experience. Mysticism begins in experience, and it ends in theology. So, sweet is saying, if you want to really have it sweet, how sweet it isn't, then start with the mysticism and move to theology. Now, he's being invited to talk to Adventist pastors. You know, I'm sitting there going, okay, I'll do whatever you say. No, I was like, I, had a, I was almost apoplectic at this point. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 7 says, but not so with the emerging church, or like I call it the submergent church. <laughs> Seeing and touching things is what's really focused on. Touching images and icons and smelling incense and hearing chants and having worship and praise. And Have you ever noticed, uh, have you noticed the new trend that people want to have worship and praise for an hour or two hours and then the pastor gets up and says like two words and they go, that's enough. Is that happening in some even Adventist churches today? I talked to someone who was on the camp meeting circuit yesterday, if that's more up to date for you, and they told me, yes, I spoke. I said, where'd you speak? I spoke for the youth. I said, oh, when did you get up to speak? They said, well, they had the praise and worship for an hour and a half, and they gave me 20 minutes. That's kind of even happening today, isn't it? Chance, making of the sign of the cross. These are the things that Sweet says will work. And being anointed with oil. Now, if you added all those together and you said, what church really does most of those, where would you be headed? The Catholic Church. Right. Now, this is what he calls it as he talks about it. Postmoderns want a God they can feel, taste, touch, hear, and smell. A full sensory immersion in the divine. And so he says, what you need to do to have your church really grow is to have an epic mentality. It needs to be experiential driven. In other words, touch, taste, feel, and all that. Participatory, you get up. Image driven, all the screens, everything else. And connected, I mean, video clips, everything else during the thing. Just have it alive and be connected. By the way, that is an outline to a book called Great Controversy, a chapter called False Revivals. If you want to read that in a book that's up to date, just read The Great Controversy, and it's exactly the opposite picture. I didn't... Next time I give this presentation, I'll have all the quotes together for it, but I didn't have all the quotes this time. But I'm going to tell you, um, if you read False Revivals, Modern Revivals, rather, Modern Revivals, and then The Aims of the Papacy, those two chapters, you will see all of this. In fact, Peter Drucker didn't come up with it. It's been there for a long time. But they seem to connect the dots. To connect with the immersion people, continues Dirksen in his writing, we need to look back much further than the 12th century or even the 20th century, even the Reformation. Ancient practices that seem to have spiritual significance for immersion people are often found in the 3rd century. The, the turn of the first millennium or the drama of worship in the Middle Ages. <laughs> See, they know where it comes from. And he says, what we need is the emergent mystique. Mystery, says Rob Bell, who is the pastor of the largest church in 
Michigan, Grand Rapids, the one they send many of the students from to go study what they should do in terms of worship in a demon program that's not far from there. Which is the reason some of us picked other demon programs a little further from there. So you have this happening. And then another one, another one that was on the circuit when I was in college, they invite all the time was Tony Campolo. Have you ever heard of him? They invite him all the time, and he's always in the transversing the Adventist campuses. But he's written a new book too, and he's talking about the emergent mysticism and how good it is. And notice what he says. The methods of praying embodied by the likes of Ignatius have become precious to me. With the help of some Catholic saints, my prayer life has deepened. <laughs> oh, it's sad. This is a Baptist minister that's no longer even near his roots. I learned about this way of having a born-again experience from reading the Catholic mystics, especially the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola. Like most Catholic mystics, he developed an intense desire to experience a oneness with God. Wrong answer. Ignatius of Loyola didn't have any experience with God. He had an experience with the devil. And he was the one that founded the Jesuit movement that was specifically formed to undo the Reformation and the spiritual exercises according to Wiley's history of the Reformation, if you care to read about it, were specifically designed to counterfeit the true experience of being born again so that people who didn't have the experience that came of being saved by grace through faith and the peace that passes understanding could still get a piece of the rock, the false rock, the rock in a little dome near the Tiber River. You know what I'm saying? So this was the counterfeit. And here we have a Protestant minister who's no longer Protestant saying that he was born again by following Ignatius of Loyola. Now, these are the times we live in, and the reason I tell it to you is because what? In Adventist history, there were these experiential driven things that started to creep into the church, and Essen Haskell was used by the Lord to bring clarity out of the midst of confusion in Indiana, and at the end of time, it is only going to happen more and more and more and more. And there's going to be a great shaking in Adventism, and lots of people will leave. But others will come in and take their places. I don't want to be leaving. I want to be staying. That make sense? So what do we need? You know, we need to have a true experience with the Lord that leads us to adore Him. An experience that's full of grace and truth. Amen? We get a lot of talk about grace. That's really a disgrace today. But grace and truth, that's what Jesus was filled with, full of grace and truth. Now, by the way, just to kick it up a small notch, if you're already not with me, but I think you are. <laughs> the, like I said, these thought leaders, Rick Warren and the others, they have a plan. You know what they say the second coming should be? They preach the second coming. Do you know what they say the second coming is? It's the second coming of a universal church, all working together for the good of society. The parousia now has been the kingdom of God on earth, not the kingdom of God 
in heaven. And so they take all those texts and they say, yeah, the second coming needs to come. What exactly do they think should happen? Here's what Rick Warren, who influences all the others, and they all kind of work together. A hundred years ago, Protestantism divided one group focused on the social gospel being the kingdom of God by bringing in good social structures. That was the Catholics. While the other focused on personal salvation for individuals. That's the Protestants. Who's right? Well, they both are, and they need to be brought back together, says Rick Warren. So his big stated purpose is to bring them all back together. How many think that sounds a little suspect? And, you know, they're not calling them non-denominational churches anymore because they figured out that that really, really wasn't so bright. Because, I mean, does that make any sense? We're a non-denominational church. <laughs> so that's the new denomination. I mean, you're calling yourself non-denominational. You think you're fooling me? That's just another name for, like, we're nothings, you know. But now they're calling themselves interdenominational churches. Down the street from my place, I've had about four churches, and, and they have interdenominational, and one of them just crossed out non-denominational because they didn't, couldn't afford the sign yet, and they put interdenominational. <laughs> kind of helped me, though, because I took a picture of it. So Rick Warren then continues, when you get 25% of America, which is basically Catholic, and you get 28 to 29% of America, which is evangelical together, it's called a majority. And it is a very powerful block. If they happen to stay together on particular issues, and I would encourage you to look at this evolving alliance between evangelical Protestants and Catholics. So now he's writing these books called The Purpose Driven Life. How many of you have seen that book? And that's written for, that was written for Protestants and Evangelicals. So now he has a Catholic version and other versions coming out. And his big stated purpose now is to bring these two groups together. I'm the basis of a mystical worship adoration experience. And have you ever been to one of these big, huge churches? I was one, at one recently. Someone invited me said, I'll come to your meetings if you come to my church. I went to the church with them because I could go. They always beat the rush. They're a day early. And, uh, many more dollars than I have. And they were in there, and they had these lights that came and they had the Mass. They didn't call it that. It's a Protestant church, former Baptist minister, and he, everyone comes out, and they pass out all the bread. And they happened to have a Catholic, past, a Catholic priest there that day who they were giving money, donation for abortion issues in a clinic. And he came up, and he oversaw the passing out of the bread. And this was in the middle of America in a very conservative part of the country. And the lights went down at Central Christian Church. You know where that is, right there on Rock Road. And they were all drawn together. And that's exactly what was foretold, those kind of things. So, in light of that, in our last 20 minutes of this adoration section, we're going to go into the proclamation section, which is even more exciting than this one. For those of you who wonder, to and fro. Um, in the last 20 minutes, I want to tell you what I think we need. And I have it here. Actually, it's outlined in, in this, these flyers. And it's an outline to a study that I give to my AFCO students. Don't worry. I'm okay. I know you were going to call home. Um, and it's called A Revelation of Doctrine and Discipleship. I think that's what we need today. What we need is a revelation of doctrine, that is true teaching, and discipleship. In other words, look, let's face it. People today that look at the church, 
they have every right to demand that there is something more than just teaching. There's an experience that's related to that. Do you have any problems with that? But what we need to give them is a, is an, what needs to happen is that God has to be so in our lives that they know that we are experiencing the love of Christ and they seem that they can experience it because we've experienced it and they start to experience it. And there's basically, there's basically eight truths in, found in Revelation chapter 1. And look at me then with, in Revelation chapter 1. And uh, Revelation chapter 1, we'll look at this in light of uh, adoring Christ. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to things which he saw. So here John has this experience. Did he have an experience, yes or no? But it was also reality. He receives the word of God. Now how is it... Now, you see, in some churches, they'll say, that's enough. That's all you need to do. I was talking, giving a Bible study to an Orthodox believer. And he says, why do you guys get so much into the Bible? I said, well, what do you guys do with the Bible? He says, we kiss it. I said, excuse me? We kiss the Bible. You know, I said, you mean you kiss it? And he said, yes. In the processional, when it comes by, the priest and the, the one of the, uh, they will kiss the Bible. But we don't really read it. We kiss it. With all due respect, I found that odd. <laughs> but that was the ritualistic way that they were giving glory and adoring the Word of God. But is that what John does? What is the experience component? You have the teaching and whatnot, but those are what he says. How can you experience it? Blessed, it says, verse 3, are those who read and kiss it. Is that what it says? No. Blessed are those who read and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written for the time is near. So what is the best way to bring adoration to God and to bring this experience into, into a reality on your life and others? You read it, you hear it, and then by the Spirit and the power of God, you keep it. If people see that happening, they go, wait a minute, this is the right one, baby, uh-huh. This is it. They're actually living the book. Right? This is why we get a little nervous when people say, well, I know the Bible says that, but <laughs> our church does this. You know, Adventists are not like that. I am thankful that Adventist doctrine is still pure. Are you thankful for that? Amen. Now, practice may not be pure. There's a difference between faith and practice. But I'm thankful for the people that you can meet that at least at that point in their life are reflecting Christ, right? I always do all, my, all I can to say, don't look at me, don't look at people, look to Christ. But there are people out there that are faithful. I want to be one of those people. Amen. For my kids, Amen. for my church, Amen. for my students, Amen. right? For my neighbors. So the first thing is this revelation of of doctrine and discipleship is the Word of God. Next, let's go on verse 4. John, to the seven churches who are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits are before his throne. 
And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now notice something about this. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the blood, to him who has loved us and washed us in our sins. Is that what it says? What does it say? It washed us from our sins in his own blood and has, what's it say next? Made us kings and priests. In other words, he doesn't just wash us in our sins. Uh, the experience is not one that says, okay, I can continue going on in sin, but washes us from our sins. And I would say, by his grace, gives us victory over sin. How many think that's true? Now, so if you meet someone who used to just cuss and swear all the time and do all these terrible things, and then they're changed, what do you think? They're experiencing the gospel. They, they, are, they are so in love with God that His love has been poured into their hearts and there's been a change. And that's not just the doctrine. That's discipleship. That's an experience now, I work at Amazing Facts, and that's not just an opinion. And I w work with all these people that are just completely, they just were completely, well, some of them are here today. They were just completely way out there, and I'm not talking about you. But some of these people were just complete felons and crooks and, and everything else. I mean, my landlord is a five or a four-time felon, and she's a crack addict. Um, and uh, would do anything for that dopamine stimulation. Anything. And finally was put in jail and had lost her teeth. And I don't know if you've ever seen anybody that's on methamphetamine. They just lose all presence of mind and actually almost their mind. And this is how she was and this is how her boyfriend was. And so she totally hit bottom. She was incarcerated, so she couldn't have methamphetamine in there. And so she kind of, she got out of it. She made a decision. I don't want this for myself. I'm going to change. And by the Holy Spirit's power, she changed. And she got out. She told her boyfriend, touch not, taste not, handle not until you're off that stuff. Which is a great text. Touch not, taste not, handle not. So he said, man, if I'm going to have the, if I'm going to be with, with this lady, I'm going to have to change. And so that coupled with how she had changed, he decided to change. And they both were sitting in this destitute house. They got a little bit of electricity to the house. It was one of their relatives' house, and they let him stay in the house, but they wouldn't let him come to anybody's house. It's in the middle of the back 40 because he hadn't paid taxes in 10 years, and they never wanted to be seen because they called him the phantom. They couldn't find him anywhere. And all they lived for was for methamphetamine. And they're sitting there in the back, and they've made this decision as a rope of sand that they were going to just walk and, uh, you know, live for God. And then they're watching it, and then they start watching TV, and they start watching TV, and they go, we better get rid of this. This is helping us, not helping us. They were, they were being tempted by it. But then they came across channel, channel 27. And on Channel 27, they saw this program with the guy who was bald, who talked about living in a cave. <laughs> And they're watching it, and it makes a lot of sense to them. So they're like watching it every day, and they're watching it. And so then they, they, they drive by amazing facts. They told me the first time they drew that, I was like, there it is. 
And they went to Taco Bell to get something to eat. And they were in Taco Bell, and Doug Batchelor was in Taco Bell. <laughs> so they go up to, and there's Doug Batchelor sitting there in Taco Bell, and they go, oh, it's him, <laughs> the bald caveman. So they walk over, and, they, and, she, and, and, and she walks over, and she goes, are you Doug Batchelor? Yes. And I've been watching you, told the story, and I don't even know what she looked like, but, you know, probably beat up. And so he went out and he gave her some literature, got her started on Bible studies. She started coming to church. They went to church for fun. Finally, everything left their lives. Everything began to drop off in their life. They had not only the doctrine, but they were becoming discipled and an experience was coming in their life. And finally, they stopped smoking and they were baptized. And now they work in Amazing Facts. Amen. And they're my landlords. Amen. After that all happened, both their parents died. They willed them everything. They went from having nothing to having everything. But now they use it all for the master's kingdom. You can't tell me people don't have an experience in the Seventh-day Adventist church. The doctrines change people, and Jesus' love changes people. When it comes into their hearts, they change. That's the Word of God. We need more of that. That's why I like working at Amazing Facts. Had another guy that just got out of jail who's working in shipping. <laughs> right? I like that. I remember talking to this one lady. She said, I came to Amazing Facts to get a job, and I had just gotten out of jail. And I went to see the HR guy, and I sat down, and I said, this is what I've done in my life. This is what I've done in my life. This was the first time the lady had ever worn a skirt, because they said you had to wear a skirt to work, you know. So she's there, and she, she went out, and she bought the skirt for the interview, and she goes through it all. She's like, oh, man, you know, I'm going to lose this job. I'm never going to get it like any other. And when, he, when she got through... Man, ask a few questions about our experience with Jesus and said, you know what? You're just the kind of person we need here. You can't tell me that there's not an experience that can be had by people as they come. And you can't tell me there's not an experience by those who have been members a long time. Amen? So what we need is the doctrine, but we also need discipleship. Let's go to the, so, so in other words, the power of salvation, you saw it right there. He washed us, he saved us not in our sins, but from our sins. Wow. So these, you know, these people that used to be doing crack and crank now are teaching Sabbath school. Amen. They're flying around telling, sharing their testimony. Uh, every Thursday night, I live right next to them. They're my landlords. And they have a group on Monday night and a group on Wednesday night and a group on Thursday night. They got all of these drug addicts and everything else coming in there and are all coming and they're helping them change. You can't tell me. There's demoniacs even today who can change and reach the Decapolis. Look at the next one. So, the word... Second thing in Revelation is salvation. Third thing, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also which pierced him in all the tribes of the earth. The doctrine of the second coming. Does that change, people? You know, those in the Rick Warren camp, they're saying that the doctrine of the second coming is not him coming literally again. It is them linking with government to do good works on earth. I don't believe that. I believe Jesus is coming again. And I believe there happens to have been a lot of change that came from a church that's preached that. I know it's true because voice of prophecy came once to town and they were there where my grandfather was and there he was and he heard that lift up the trumpet and loud let it sing. Loud let it ring and he went to the meeting and he only heard one sermon and it was the mark of the beast. And he listened to that he goes, well that's right. 
And so he went down and he said, I'm not going to work anymore on Sabbath. And he lost his job in the middle of the Depression. And he walked home, and as he was walking home, he said, God, following your truth, he used up all his vacation time. What am I going to do now? I've had the experience of losing my job. I'm following you. And there was this little lady that picked him up on the way home and said, what's wrong with you? He says, I lost my job. Why did you lose your job? To keep the seventh-day Sabbath and not receive the mark of the beast. And the lady said, that's amazing. I'm a Jew. I believe in the Sabbath, too. I'll get you some work. So he, she called all of her friends who had cars to repair and everything, and he, she, she kept him busy for months. Finally, he started his own shop, opened up a shop, an auto mechanic shop, and on the front he put a picture of the Ten Commandments, and he memorized all the Bible texts from the Bible studies from Voice of Prophecy, and when people came in to get their car fixed, he gave them 10% off if they let him give him a Bible study. You can't tell me that that doctrine of the Second Coming doesn't change people. Amen? Whoa. Man. I, every single doctrine that we have, I can tell you an experience about it. What's the next one in Revelation chapter 1? I was in the Spirit for the Word of God on the Lord's Day. I was, I was persecuted for the Lord's Day. I had a man in my church. He came. I studied the Sabbath with him. He again, he was in a Pentecostal church, which was experience-driven. But he saw the Word of God, and he said, no, we don't need experience. We need the truth of God. So he took a stand in his family. I remember going to their house and studying, and they'd have, the, the lady was not yet with us, you know, and she, she had Benny Hinn laying eggs on the TV and everybody else. And they were like, oh, like this. And I'm trying to study, you know, I'd like trip over the court to turn the TV off and stuff. And, and most of the time I'd do it, and I'd study with them, and then I'd leave, and you know, and then she'd go, you, what you all need is not doctrine. I just need to lay my hands on you. And she would. And that was going on. But he said, no, I'm walking away from that. And he took, he, he, he accepted the Sabbath. He went to his job. He said, I'm going to write a letter. He went to his job. Now, he happened to be a good worker. Don't go and ask for Sabbath off. If you've been a bad worker, just go ahead and quit your job because you're going to lose it. They're looking for a reason to get rid of you. But he was a good worker. And so he went and he told them, he said, look, I, I'm, I believe in the Sabbath. And, I, and they said, man, we can't lose you, Sammy. You're a great worker. We're going to shift you around. Just give us a letter from your pastor. So I wrote him a letter, you know, the typical Bible study. Sammy has this conviction, and this is why, because he's read Exodus, this and that and the other. It's the whole Bible study, and it's just in one page, and all that, and, and Sammy is, a, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so he gave it to his boss, and his boss shifted him to some other place. Six months later, fast forward to tape. He comes back to me and says, Pastor, i got to meet with you. I go, oh, no, Sammy's slipping off the cracker here. Something's going wrong. I said, what's wrong, Sammy? He says, well, I'm having problems at work. I said, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since I talked to you last time, I've been shifted to about 20 or 30 different departments. And the letter you gave me, I can, can't, can't copy it anymore. I can't read it hardly. Could you get me a new copy? What was God allowing Sammy to do? He was allowing him to witness all over that plant and he was such a good worker, they didn't want to get rid of him. And he went all over the plant and told about the Sabbath. See, he had an experience with Jesus that he could trust him. Amen? With that whole thing. What's the next doctrine? Let's finish it up here. Uh, oh, how, 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 how long do I have? I what? 
Oh, I got some minutes. Well, I could even slow down. I could have told you more stories. Let's go to the next one. The next doc How many of you like these doctrines right here all in one chapter? Kind of, you don't have to really flip out all through the Bible. You just stay flipped in right in one chapter. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Now notice the next one. I like this next one. Then I turned and heard the voice, verse 12, that spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. What's that? What's that? That is a picture of Jesus where? In what temple? In the New Covenant temple. A couple of, a couple of, the temple of the New Covenant. The New Covenant temple is the heavenly sanctuary. New Covenant Christians need to be focused on what's happening in the heavenly sanctuary. And John, who had experienced this wonderful experience with Jesus on earth, now sees Jesus. He's high and lifted up. And he sees this theophany. And he sees him right in heaven. And there he is among the seven lampstands in heaven. Now, why do I think this is so important? You know, there are several quotations, and if you want to look them up, I might be able to find them. Oh, this doesn't look too good. I might be able to find them on my, in my presentation right now, but I won't. Cause you know what? She specifically links the word adoration with Jesus' resurrection and ascension into the heavenly sanctuary. It says when he went up there, he received the adoration of angels. Because, you remember when he was down there on earth, and that lady came and tried to talk to him? He said, don't touch me, I'm not yet ascended to my father. It was because he needed to go up there and, and make sure that he would receive the adoration of the angels and the adoration of the Father above. And he did. Amen. And he received that adoration. And it was a time of inauguration, she says. When he went up there, it was inauguration. Numbers chapter 7, verse 1. All the priests would go back, and whenever they moved the sanctuary, they would be an inauguration of the sanctuary. And so that there was an inauguration, and the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus, you know. It says in Hebrews 1, verse 8 and 9, since we're studying Hebrews, that he was anointed with the oil of gladness more than all his brethren, because he loved righteousness and he hated lawlessness. So, you know, you want, how can I have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Well, you need to have an experience with God where you, what? You so love Him that you love righteousness and you hate lawlessness. And then the Holy Spirit can be poured out on you. If not, you're going to be broiled in oil. Right? Because that would, that would do you in. You know, you would become a flaming torch and <laughs> burn. Because, but if you are surrendered to Him totally then what? And that's exactly what happened. When he was up there in heaven, what happened? Among those seven lampstands, the oil covered him, and then it went down his robe, even the robe of Aaron, and it went down to the hem of his garment, it says in Psalm 133, and then it came down through there, and we see in Acts chapter 2, we see that flames of fire descending on the apostles. And it was the experience of Jesus that then transmitted to them so to speak, and they were the willing recipients of the early reign. So, why do I bring that up? Because true adoration worship is always connected with what Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary. Did you hear what I just said? 
True adoration worship is always connected with what Jesus is doing in the sanctuary. I have a series of studies, I'm through number 14, where I'm writing these studies that go right through the sanctuary and they connect the prophecies with all the feasts as they connected with the sanctuary service and they go right through time and we're living right now on the Day of Atonement and the next thing is the Feast of Tabernacles. But let me just tell you this, every form of worship that does not, is not cognizant of what Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary is a false form of worship to a lesser or greater extent. You remember the story in, uh, what was it? Testimonies to Ministers, or was it Early Writings, page 51 and 52, where you have these two groups and they're praying and they're praying in the holy place. Remember this picture? They pray in the holy place, and as they're praying in the holy place, then in 1844, what happens? Jesus comes and he moves from the holy place into the most holy place. The one group stays praying there before the altar in the holy place. And the other group follows by faith into the most holy place. And the group that follows by faith into the most holy place, the Spirit of God is with them still. And they have love, joy, peace, and power and light, the text says in early writings. Look at that. Power, light, love, joy, and peace. What's love, joy, and peace? What's that sound like? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And then they have power and light. But then the ones that stay in the holy place, guess what it says? They have light and much power. That sounds a lot like that epic worship experience to me, right? Like ignite the fire and all that stuff. They have light and power, but they have no, it says in the text, love joy and peace. They have the outward signs of experience, but they don't have the inward signs of experience. If you love me, keep my commandments. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. If you want to see an experience of adoration, then pick on a Christian. And you'll see whether or not they are one pretty soon. I live with my grandfather, and I used to pick upon him unmercifully. And he was older in life. Older in life. I remember one time I was railing upon him with uh, all the viciousness of an unconverted person when he first moved in with me. And he said to me, why are you using me this way? And I said to him, well, I just want to see what you're made of. And he just began to cry. And he says, I came here to live and die for you. That's what I'm made of. And if this is the way it ends, I'm happy to die. But I only want to see you in heaven. Amen. His experience with Jesus and his obedience in the face of my withering sarcasm changed my life. Changed my life. I told you the other day, he'd, he'd pull out a testimonies volume this or that. He'd never criticize people. He'd just say, well, maybe they didn't read it. And as he did that, as he did that, that changed something in me. Because I realized that he not only had the doctrine, but he also was a disciple. Great peace have they which love thy life, and nothing shall offend them. Love, joy, and peace. Amen? Amen? Look at the next one. We've only got three minutes. How many like Revelation chapter 1? It's got it all there. Revelation chapter 1. Let's go to the next one as we finish up. 
In Revelation chapter 1, I like this one, <clears throat> verse 16. He had his right hand, in his right hand seven stars, and his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining into the strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am who, he who lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. The ultimate experience at the end of time for those that are faithful is that they will see, they will be resurrected and they'll see others resurrected. They've been faithful unto death, they're resurrected from death. And that is the kind of experience I'll trade all these other experiences for. Amen? Amen. If you have that resurrection experience to eternal life, he has the power of has the keys to Hades and to death. Man, I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to that. And then finally, two others as we close in our last two minutes, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after that. The things which you have seen, past. The things which are, present. The things which will take place, future. What is that? That's an ongoing sense of what? Prophetic Prophetic information. Surely the Lord will go do nothing save He reveal Himself to His servants, the prophets. Don't talk to me about a church that's off the map. I'm not interested in it. Don't talk to me about a church that's emerging that I'm creating. I'm not interested in it. Don't talk to me about a church that's not coming from God's Word or the Spirit of prophecy. I'm not interested in it. It's a submerged church. Right? I'm not interested in this emergent church movement. I know what it is already. It's emerging from the pit. What I'm interested in is the detergent church. I don't need an emergent church. I need a detergent church. Not one that makes things darker, that creates sacred spaces, that makes dark candles and little, all these different things. Don't give me that. Give me the detergent church that cleans people up. Amen. Right? Does the spirit of prophecy do that? When you read it, does it do that? It at least tells you where you're dirty. <laughs> Amen. And what the, it says you stink <laughs> or you're dirty. <laughs> and, and by God's grace, it helps you clean up. Is that true? Yes. I mean, uh, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, all these different things, faithfulness. The Spirit gives you even faith or obedience, the ability. Um, and the Spirit of Prophecy has been a great blessing to this church. I, I dare say, if you look, just take one thing about the Spirit of Prophecy in terms of experience. People that have followed it have experienced less heart disease, cancer, stroke, and all those different things. How many think that's a pretty uncontrovertible experience? There's like 350 or 60 studies documenting that experience. If you want a church with a real experience, it's the Adventist church. Right? So some Adventists don't follow it. One guy came to me and he goes, I don't believe what you're saying. I'm one of those Adventists who eats meat, and I do this and I do that. And I said, that's good. That's good. You know, praise God. That is your choice, and you will help us with our statistics. <laughs> you know, you will demonstrate one side of the Adventist health study, and others will do the other. So eat up and enjoy yourself, and we'll talk about you several years after you're gone. So, you know, 
And he kind of stopped a minute. He goes, whoa. I said, no, I didn't really mean that. I wish you would change because I'd like you to be on this set of numbers. You know? Right over here, you're, here, you're headed this way. Anyway. Oh, by the way, just because you do everything right, does that mean you don't sometimes experience cancer? I was talking the other day to Dane Griffin. He seems to have eaten a lot of good things. And he got cancer of the ureter and of the bladder, and they thought it went to the kidney, and they think they got it all, praise God. But why did that happen? I think God sometimes allows those who truly love and know him. I have no question about Dane and Vicky. I mean, I don't know their heart, but as far as I know, I've known them for years. Sometimes he allows them to be his honor guard. There's some things even more beautiful to the Lord than having someone live eight to ten years longer because they ate all veggies. And that's those he can trust under the, in the furnace and fire of affliction. When it doesn't seem like it should happen, but they still are faithful like Job. Right? Who's more powerful witness, Job or someone who ate carrots and veggies and lived for 12 more years? I'm just saying. You understand? But eat your veggies, okay? Last one. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, the angels of the seven churches, the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. I got to tell you, I love the Adventist church. I've experienced a lot of things in the Adventist church. I've experienced bad, I've experienced good. But the bad is because there's always people in a church. It's not because of the, it's not because of the, uh, of the doctrines of the church. Uh, you know what I mean? It's not because of Jesus. It's because there's people coming together and they sometimes hit each other. And they sometimes mess each other up. What's it say in 1 John? If we walk in the light, see is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin, which means we have sin in the church. And we're walking together, and we're in the light, and we didn't know more about each other. And you know what? A blessed experience is to see people who have wronged you then come around. And it might not happen for five years, and it might not happen for ten years, and it might not happen for thirty years. But then there's that communion service where they finally come around. And I've seen that. And if I don't see it, I don't have to see it. But I have seen it where people come around. And I'd rather experience the bad in the church than the bad out of the church any day of the week. Put me in the ark with the smelly animals, but don't put me into the raging torrents without. Amen? I like God's cleansing mechanism in the church, which is a whole new other thing. I like the theology of the Adventist church that talks about how he's cleansing heaven all the way down to the toes. And I want to be a part of the detergent church, not the emergent church. Let's pray together. And then you can take your break. Father in heaven, we're thankful today for this uh, reminder uh, that you want us to have an adoration for you that's based on scripture, the fact that you've saved us, that you're coming again that uh, we can experience you on the Sabbath day and we can experience you and uh, work with you on your plan of salvation as described in the sanctuary model, that your wonderful right hand will resurrect and that your spirit of prophecy guides and we can be a part of your church today. May we ever be filled with adoration and we thank you and we come in Christ's name. Amen.